Hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those, who, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when, that, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beast at Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. 
What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star and splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Hope you're doing well this fine, fine morning. Such a joy to be together with all of you. We only have today and next week left in the book of 1 Corinthians. And after that, we're going to start a new series in our our new Advent series starting the week after next as we prepare for Christmas. And I can't believe how fast time seems to be flying by. I mean, we're already working on Christmas Advent series. Now, don't get me wrong, I love me some Christmas. Give me some knacking cold Christmas album on a cold day, nothing better. Oh, Tannenbaum, anybody? Yeah? It's the best Christmas album of all time. Knacking cold Christmas, seriously. His voice is awesome. But it feels like just yesterday was summer, and, my, and then it also feels like yesterday my kids were babies. I'm getting old. You ever stop and think that way? Like, I mean, like, I literally, I just, the idea of, like, it being Christmas now makes me all of a sudden stop and feel like I'm getting old, because it was just summertime, and it was just, my, baby, my kids were just babies, and now they're old. I'm like, what's going on? He's six, and in kindergarten, and, oh, it's just weird. I feel, I feel like sometimes as I go through series of books with you guys as a church, 
As we go to the end of every book, I always feel like, oh, wow, we just closed another chapter or another kind of series that we've been going through as a book. And Pastor Danny and I have been talking about what is it that we want our church to get? As we prepare the sermons, we think about, we always go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, because we want you to see the value of both. We want you as a people to see the meta-narrative, the redemptive story that God has been weaving from the very beginning. That they're not separate books. It's this one incredible story that's our story, that we're a part of. So we're very intentional about going Old Testament and New Testament. But we're also very intentional of getting you, okay, when was the last time we went into the Gospels? When was the last time we had a, a, a letter? How much knowledge can we get? If we go through a, a difficult book, like if we go through like the book of Kings, you're like, oh, I don't know how much knowledge we can get. I mean, how much can we glean from Kings? So let's give them like an easier book, like, I don't know, uh, Galatians or something like that. It's easier to understand. And as we're playing this out, we want you as, as Waypoint Church, as you've been here for a while with us, we want to make sure that you're getting the full breadth of Scripture. We want you to understand theology. We want you to understand theology so well that because good theology leads to good practice. When you think rightly about something, then you live rightly. Does that make sense? So this is all very intentional how we're kind of going back, but every time we finish up a book, I stop and I just kind of think about what do we get from this book? What do we learn from the book of Corinthians? What do we learn from this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church? I hope you learned a lot. It's been rich full of instructions for that church that teaches us so much today. Last week we saw that Paul is calling the church body to unity and productiveness by using gifts given to them for the sake of the church. He's calling them not to divide or to do anything that would cause less effectiveness to their cause. Instead, he's calling them to do good works that they're called together as a body to do. Then in chapter 15, he tells them their source of hope and comfort as they accomplish this work. Chapter 15, so it's an important text on resurrection. It's an incredible answer by Paul to the Corinthian church, Christians who may be questioning with this teaching on the resurrection. His main purpose is summed up by the last verse of the chapter. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, in the previous verses, it talks about, guys, be in unity, be unified, use the practice, the gifts that God's given you, the skills he's given you, the talents he's given you for the good works that he's called you to. And what he's telling the church now, he's saying, guys, you've been blessed, you've been given gifts, be unified together for this great work. But this last chapter, verse 15, he's saying, your source of hope in it, your source of, kind of that propels you, your fuel and your source of joy in it is that we have the resurrection power in us. That we have a resurrected king and we ourselves will be resurrected. He said, be steadfast, be immovable, know that the, what you're doing now is not in vain. Paul is encouraging the people to the work that God has called them by reminding them of the power of the resurrection. He's saying no matter what happens, as we strive for the Lord, it is not in vain because Jesus was resurrected and so will we. So labor on. Guys, some of you guys need to hear that today. Some of you guys need to hear this message so loud and clear. You're striving, you're working, you're devoting yourself to the cause of Christ, you're devoting yourselves to your neighbors and to the good of your community, you're devoting yourselves to sharing the gospel and you're giving and you're giving yourselves and you feel tired. You're wondering, is it in vain? Can I tell you something that like God sees, he knows, and his resurrecting power is gonna make the things that you don't even think is happening come true. 
that his power in the areas where you don't see any breakthrough, you don't see any success, you don't see any results, even in those areas where you feel like the doors are closed and nothing is happening, God will make all things new. So he's saying, strive on. Do you hear me? I know some of our people are giving of themselves, living in communities where they're sharing the gospel and having people live with them and in difficult places and difficult work situations or yet family members that you've been praying for. Strive on. The same power that recognizes Jesus is at work in you and at work in them. Can I get an amen? <clears throat> this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is an important text on the, the doctrine and teaching of the resurrection. It's been noticed for years that this is weird text that comes kind of like, it's Paul's answer, like, hey, people are questioning, do we, does our body get resurrected too? And Paul gives this beautiful argument, this logic reasoning statement to them. But before we do that, I want us to look at the person of Paul, the person who's given this argument. Paul is almost the last person on the planet who would have likely to believe that Jesus is divine and should have been worshiped. I mean, Paul was the guy who was anti-Christianity. He was the one putting down the people of the way. He was persecuting the church. And what could have brought Paul to a place where he came to faith in Jesus, came to faith in Christ? And the answer Paul states multiple times over and over again is the resurrection. The resurrection is a massive, com comprehensive argument for him to know Jesus is real and he should profess faith in him. Because it didn't just address Paul's mind, but it addressed every part of him. The resurrection addressed his conscience, his heart, and his mind. The resurrection of Jesus Christ argued Paul into a changed life. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you the three parts of this argument on the resurrection. And I got these three parts by Tim Keller. And the first one is argument to the mind. Second one is argument to the conscience. And the third one is argument to the heart. Verses three through nine, he gives you a historical case for the resurrection of Jesus. These are three interlocking parts to this. This is the case that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened as a historical event. Verse four tells us that Jesus was buried but rose, so the tomb is empty. Second, it says that in verse six, there were literally hundreds of people who saw Jesus with their eyes, and in some cases, touched him with their hands. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses. So one, the tomb is empty, Two, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. And mind you, when he says hundreds of eyewitnesses, when Paul was writing this, it was only about 16 to 18 to 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So that wasn't that long. He literally makes the point that says, there's, some of them might have passed away, but most of them are still alive. Most of the eyewitnesses are still alive. So he's saying something that's saying, these eyewitnesses are still alive, so go ask them. They prof professed to everybody that could hear that they saw Jesus. So hundreds of eyewitnesses, most are still alive. And the third part, and the third part of the case that's, that's to me the most compelling part is to change lives of the people who met Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead. Paul, of course, himself is an example. He's able to make this offer. He says, all the people who still live in Judea, who are, who are alive, who saw the risen Jesus with their own eyes, you can go talk to them, and you can go talk to them because they're still living in a changed manner. I mean, he wouldn't have offered that if they didn't live in a changed way. If all these eyewitnesses were like, oh, I saw him, but who cares, it doesn't affect my life, then he wouldn't say, go talk to them, because it wouldn't be a compelling argument. But all the people who saw him, who saw the resurrection, they lived completely differently. The historians say that every single martyr, or every single disciple, except for John, died a martyr's death. And to me, there's nothing more compelling than that argument, because you think, if, if they made this story up, if they made the story about seeing Jesus, they made up, it was, oh, well, 
Did you see Jesus? No. Did you? No. Let's just tell everybody that we did. Would they have taken it to the ends of the earth? Would they have suffered for it? Would they have died a gruesome and torturous death for something that they just made up? Does that make sense? Historians say that all the disciples, but John died about them. When you put these three things together, when you put the empty tomb, historically shown, when you put that together, we put the eyewitnesses and the changed lives of the people who saw Jesus, you have a very, very powerful case for the resurrection of Jesus. If you have just one of those, N.T. Wright says this, puts it like this. He says, if there was only an empty tomb and there were no sightings, then people could have just believed the body was stolen. If there'd only been eyewitnesses claiming to have seen him, but the tomb still had a body in it, then maybe mass hallucination. Only if all these things were true, the empty tombs, the sightings, and the permanently changed lives of the witnesses, could Christianity have ever begun. What a compelling argument that is, right? If you had just one of those three things, it'd be, it'd be hard to argue. It would be kind of, you know, you can explain it in a way. But all three of those historical facts prove this beautiful argument to the mind that says the resurrection is not something that we just say, oh, Jesus was resurrected. You know, kind of like spiritually. Jesus was resurrected, but like in a metaphysical sense. No, no, no. He was actually resurrected from the dead. So that death has no control over him. And this is historical proof. It's hard to argue against. And that's the case that resurrection happened. This is what Paul is saying, why he believes in Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. And that sounds great. He lived back dead. But what are we supposed to do with that now? I mean, can we really say that? I mean, there's no eyewitnesses we can go question right now. How would Paul speak to us now? What would he say? Would he say something different? And this is, I love this, Tim Keller says this, what Paul would have done is you have an example of what he would have done when you look at Acts chapter 26. And he says in 26, Paul appears before Festus and King Agrippa, which is another great name, Festus. If you're looking for any of you pregnant women out there, Festus. I wish, man, Josiah and Hudson. I need another kid now. But Festus was uh, the go- new governor of Caesarea, and he, wanted, he wanted, was meeting his political prisoners. So he called Paul out to make a case. He wanted to hear from Paul. And he asked also King Agrippa, who's actually the king of Judea and Galilee, where during the time where Christ's death happened. So he's having them out. Festus is like, hey, let's hear Paul talk. So Agrippa and Festus are together. They're like, Paul, come, share. What's, what are you, what's, what are you, what, what's going on here, man? You're a political prisoner. What's going on? And Paul starts sharing with them. He begins to talk about Jesus. He talks about the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And when it comes to the resurrection, Festus just stops them. Literally, this is what it says in chapter, Acts chapter 26. It says, you're out of your mind, Paul. I mean, your great learning, your, your, your intellect, your great philosophy has driven you insane. Which I love that because he's very clear that Paul is an intelligent, scholarly person and the governor is noticing this. But then when he starts talking about the resurrection, he's saying, Paul, you're you're crazy, man. Resurrection? No, no way. Paul replies, not crazy, not insane. What I'm saying is true. And then Paul looks at King Agrippa, you're familiar with all this stuff. You're the king of the region. You hear all the witnesses. You know the historical takes on it. You know this has happened right where you're at. He's literally bringing up history. He's talking about something that actually happened. Something, that's something that, that's not, that is possibly happened. That's something that some people just randomly started up or somebody wrote about. He's literally looking at the king and arguing with the king and saying, King, you know about all this, right? He says, King, you know the public facts. This is not done out of the way. He says, King, you know the tomb is empty. You know what the guard said. 
You know about the eyewitness sightings. You know about all this. So I call on to you. What are you going to do with this Jesus? Is he risen from the dead? Are all these people insane? Is history making things up? Are all the mass hallucinations happening? What are you going to do with this information? Now, I love this idea because most of the time people in our day and age, if you talk to them about Jesus, they're like, okay, you believe in Jesus. That's cool. That's fine. You believe in Jesus. That f- if it fulfills you, if it makes you happy, that's good enough. But don't try to push that on making me happy or if it doesn't fulfill me. Other things can fulfill me. But God, can I, I want you to hear something. Believing in Jesus is not about what fulfills you. We believe in Jesus because it's true. And if it's not true, then it's not enough for you. What Paul is saying is you can't just believe in Jesus because it it fulfills him. In fact, Paul himself, believing in Jesus did not fulfill him. Believing in Jesus was the opposite for him. If he believed in Jesus that destroyed his worldview, it destroyed his worth, his whole foundation of his life was built on the fact that he was a Jew amongst Jews. His whole foundation, everything about Christianity, why he was persecuting it so hard, was because it destroyed and shook up everything he stood on. His whole identity was that he was a noble person, a religious person, a trained person, a scholarly person, a holy person. He was an esteemed person. So his whole life was built on, look how awesome I am in my religious belief. But all of a sudden, here comes Christianity, flipping everything I stand for on his head. He didn't, it didn't fulfill him. It wasn't peace for him. It wasn't good for him. Does that make sense? Paul is saying, it's not about what fulfills you or not, it's whether it's true or not. And he's saying, I can't argue and compel, I can't argue with the truth of the resurrection. Instead, he'd say, let the public facts argue. 2,000 years later, we're in the same place. Account for the facts. For the facts that hundreds of Orthodox Jews at that time who had no reason to believe in the way, it threw their religion upside down, it caused them to live in precarious ways, it caused them to die in torturous deaths. Somehow this religion spread. How's that possible? It wasn't promising wealth. It wasn't promising power. It wasn't promising all the stuff that humanly we would all want naturally. This religion was promising suffering. It would compel its people to go into the quarantine areas where the plague was and go and die with other people. It was promising a torturous death at the Colosseum, being lit on fire. How could that possibly fulfill you? No, it didn't fulfill them. They worshiped because it was true. Now, here's this deal, this idea that, this idea that we have this, this incredible historical true argument happens. See, here's what happens in, in our modern society, in modern age, we've kind of become a place where all religions are okay. Does that make sense? Like, if it fulfills you, if it makes you happy, as long as it doesn't bother me. And what I love, and why Tim Keller has this one quote that I just think is just the most prof- profound quote, is this great irony is that he, he, Tim Keller says, if God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And an idealized version of yourself is not God. It's not all powerful. It cannot make all things new. He can't even argue with you when you are wrong and you know it. You need a God that is true, that is real, that is powerful, and that can meet your condition. Here's our problem, God. When we think of what just fulfills you, what makes you happy, then oftentimes what we do is we say, okay, let's worship an idealized version of ourselves, our projection of what we think God should be. Right? But here's the problem. We often change all the time, don't we? And there are also times, here's the other problem, is that we often hate ourselves. 
What do we do with that? What do we do when we worship an idolized version of ourselves that's dependent on our whims and our feelings at the moment? What do we do if we think face to face, we come with the fact that is there a true God? And do we need a true God? See, some will argue, as long as you're happy, be happy in your ignorance. And I'll say, I need a God that is powerful enough to speak in my ignorance. I need a God who can bring forth change. And I need a God who knows me and can meet my mind, my conscience, and my heart. That's the Jesus you need. You need a Lord who's not the product of your needs. You need a Lord who you believe in, not because he meets your needs, but because he is true. And here's the beautiful thing. If he is true, and he really is the one who breaks the bondage of death, then of course he'll ultimately be the most fulfilling Lord of all. Do you hear that? Number two, the argument to the conscience. If you look at verse 17, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. How did Paul get past his past? Get past his past. Yeah, it works. In verse 9, he makes a very brief allusion, but you know what he's referring to in verse 9? He says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And I said it earlier, you guys know what Paul did. When he was Saul, he persecuted the church because his foundation was built on, on, on his Jewish tradition and this young church was upsetting everything his foundation was built on. He was killing people. He, he applauded when Stephen was martyred. He was leading the charge, the campaign to get rid of these people, the followers of the Christianity, the followers of the way. Now all of a sudden, a lot of those people he's in church with. He's surrounded by these people whose friends and relatives he killed. How do you live with yourself after that? How can you ever get your confidence back? How do you lead others? How do you get past your past? Verse nine says, for I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But verse 10 and 11 then says, what he's actually kind of saying is that I'm the most, kind of saying that I'm a, I was the least, yet I'm one of the most successful, that I work harder, but not me that's working harder, but the grace of God in me. I mean, if he really felt bad about himself, then how could he also have confidence? I mean, actually, it's, if there's confidence, it's, it's this weird idea that how can somebody who knows what he's done, all the sin and all the wrong that he's done, how can he still have confidence to be boldly talking about something else, about a different life? Isn't that the problem that we often have in our own hearts? Is we have this issue of like, okay, I'm bold and I'm confident, but when you're bold and you're confident, you're not humble at all, right? But if you're humble, you're not bold at all. Is that, am I right on this? You know, if I'm sitting here and I'm like really confident and bold about something, I'm like, dude, I got this. I'm gonna come up here, I'm gonna preach, and I got this word, and this word's gonna be awesome, and you guys are gonna be like, oh, lives have changed here, they're gonna be flowing, it's gonna be awesome. There's no humility in that. But if I come up here and, and, and I'm like, I have no idea if this is gonna be good at all, and nobody's gonna listen to it, and crickets, they're gonna chirp, and all this kind of stuff. There's humility in that, but there's no confidence in that. They seem like to be opposites, right? But something profound happens here in Paul, and I'm just gonna be honest with you, something happens when I get to preach. <clears throat> is I get to walk in supreme confidence with humility, not because I'm special, but because I know that God is doing an incredible work and he does something to my past. He wipes it clean. You see, most of the time we base our self-image on our performance. We base it if we're meeting a standard or whether we're pleasing people. That way if we're living up to them, we're bold and happy but we're not humble. 
If we're failing, we're humble and sweet to other people and other failures, but we're not bold. In Christ, in the gospel, though, we know we're so wicked that he had to die for us. But we're so loved that he was glad to die for us. That means we're both weak sinners and infinitely loved at the same time. Paul is able to move ahead because of the resurrection. He says, I'm not in my sins because of the resurrections. What does that mean? If you went to jail, let's say you did a crime, right? And you committed a crime and your debt to society is two years in jail. You go to prison, you spend two years in jail and you get out. The debt is paid, right? You're done, your debt is paid. How do you know the debt's paid? Because you're out of jail. You're let out. You're let out means you're out of jail. The doors are open, right? Or put it to you another way. Let's just say you go to pick up a TV that you paid for ahead of time, right? And you go, you have the TV and you walk in the Best Buy, you're like, hey, I bought this TV. I'm here to pick it up. What? They're like, sure. They question you. They, they always question me. They're like, uh-huh. What, what do I got to do to do that? What do I do? Anybody? Show them the receipt. Christ died for the sins of the world. How do we know he actually paid the debt? Because the door opened. Because he's no longer in the grave. Because of the resurrection. Do you see that? He paid for the death sins of the world, but he, he no longer is the debt have to be paid because the doors are open, he's out. As a result, we ourselves can understand what it means to be free. We know that there is a paid in full receipt. There's this paid in full receipt that God paid and stamped all throughout history. And the receipt was stamped upon Jesus. And because he's living and he's out of jail and he's out of death, we know that it is fully paid in full. That the repercussions of our sin, of my sin, the repercussions of what we've done have been placed upon Christ and he paid it fully. Guys, I, I say this. I feel like in the church, we repeat this statement over and over again. It happens all the time. We say, oh, my sins are forgiven. Yay, sins are forgiven. Sins are forgiven. But we just say it. Guys, can I just, I'm just going to real. I'm just going to say it like this to you guys. I hope you get it. The worst of your sins. The stuff that you don't tell anybody about. The stuff that you lose sleep over at night. The worst of you've done. That much, that powerful, that incredible is the payment of Jesus Christ upon the cross for you. And it covers even that. Can I tell you something? I'm just going to be honest with you. Here's the deal. The way sin is for me and the results of my sin, the guilt of my sin, it feels like a weight. And it feels like this weight on me and it holds me and it keeps me down. But can I tell you something? That Christ paid in full upon his, with his death upon the cross. That is no longer our weight to bear. And the problem is most of us, even those who are Christian, still choose to bear that weight. See, I love this argument to the heart because the resurrection answers this issue of our own heart. The issue of our heart is that we know, I always say this, guys, and this is another waypoint, uh, trivia, waypoint sayings bingo, is that the human condition is that we want to be known, but we also want to be loved. And here's the problem, is when we want to be known, we want to be known fully. I mean, we want to be known. We want to be inside out known by someone. We crave that. But here's the problem. We don't let anybody know us. Not even your wife, not even your children, not even anybody. Because if you really let yourself be truly known, you're like, I'm pretty messed up. And you think, no way can anybody love me. 
No way can anybody love me. If you truly knew me, all my mess ups, the thoughts in my head, the darkness in my heart, if you knew me, then no way can anybody love me. And so here's this human condition, we're stuck. But the power of the resurrection, the argument that speaks to the conscience is that because Jesus was resurrected, because he, he, he planted a stamp of pain in full, that we can be actually known and we can be actually loved with all our sin, on our faults. See, the problem is we know sin exists because we feel it in our own hearts. And only through the resurrection power of Jesus can then something be done with that sin, something can be dealt with with that sin. If it's just a simple brushing away, oh, everybody sins, it's okay. That doesn't feel like justice to us, does it? It feels lacking because you look at other cases like that and you say, no, that person deserves justice. We need justice in the world. So if we just brush it aside and say, oh, who cares about sin? No, but because sin has been paid for fully, then we still have justice and still receiving love and knowing that we so desperately crave. Do you see how Jesus and the resurrection speaks to the heart? Some of you here today, you let your sins define you and state who you are. In Christ, your record is paid. You are no longer your sin, you are no longer your mistake. Stop staying in your sin. Christ is raised from the dead. You have the receipt, you have the proof. Christ is risen from the dead. There is no condemnation for those <coughs> who are in Christ Jesus today. So if you're here and you no longer wish to be bound and known only by your sin, if you know no other way to get rid of it, to get past it, accept the free gift of God today. Believe in Jesus Christ, accept his finished work, and in him you can receive a full knowing and a loving. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Three, there's an argument to the heart. Verse 30 says, we are in danger every hour. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus the Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fall with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. I love this kind of very weird, interesting passage. Uh, kind of hard to follow here. But Paul talks about the fact that he's facing death every day. He talks about facing wild beasts in Ephesus, which nobody really knows what in the world he's talking about exactly. Maybe he faced wild beasts. Like Maybe there's like, I don't know, lions and tigers and bears and other things. Uh, might be R-O-U-S's. I don't know what it is. Thank you. Anybody else get that reference? Raise your hand if you got that reference. Thank you. That's from The Princess Bride, rodents of unusual size. I know. It could also be like Psalms when, he's, when David talks about he's being surrounded and upset by beasts around him, you know? It could be kind of, kind of you know, a symbol, imagery kind of thing that he's going on here. We don't know. We do know that he's being attacked. We know things are happening. We know he's just going through hardships and hard times. But he's enduring it, he's doing it every day. Every day he's willing to die. For the sake of the people I love, every single day I face death. He says, I don't care what the cost is, I'll do the right thing. Day in and day I face death, and I have no problem with it. But if the dead weren't raised, if Jesus wasn't raised, and I wasn't going to go be raised with him, there's no reason at all to live an unselfish life. I should just eat and enjoy the pleasures of life now. Eat and drink. I mean, do you guys get what he's saying here? He's literally saying, guys, that if there is no death after, if there's no life after death, if there's no resurrection, then we of all people, it says, should be most pitied. Why is that? Why does he say that? 
He says that because he lives in such a manner that doesn't make sense if there was no resurrection. Do you hear me? He lives in such a manner that makes no sense if there's no resurrection. What he's saying, if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, if there's no life after death, if there is no resurrection, this life is all there is, what should you be doing? Eat, drink, and be merry, right? You should be seeking after hedonistic pleasures. Enjoy and maximize every moment. YOLO. Yeah, I said it. Right? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying if there's no resurrection, there's no death, but what, what this idea is, what this is speaking to, this argument to the heart is saying our heart says, no, there is more than this life. The heart that we create, the heart that yearns for eternity, the heart that yearns and longs for something bigger, says there is something bigger than just this life. Because if it was just this life, then we yes, why should you live unselfishly? It doesn't make any sense. Why should you sacrifice? It doesn't make any sense. Why should you face death? It doesn't make any sense. Why should you face wild beasts of Ephesus? Which one day I wanna see what that is. It doesn't make any sense. You should just eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever maximizes your comfort, what maximizes your happiness, your sensation, your feelings at this moment and this time for eternity. Or, or as you know of eternity, which is your short life. Do you hear that? Guys, that Paul says something totally different. He says, oh no, but because Jesus is resurrected from the dead, I can look death in the face and spit it inside and say, who cares about death? I got something better coming my way. Paul says, hey, I can face hardships. I can face difficulties. When the world falls all around me, I can stand in confidence because this world is not all there is. I have a bigger hope. I have a hope and a resurrection. And can I tell you this, this model, this philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, it doesn't work that much when life stinks, does it? This philosophy struggles when life is hard and it is always hard at, at some point for every single person in this world. Even the ones that you think has it all. So what do you do with that? If that's your philosophy, eat, drink, and be married, then I'm so sorry for you. Because this world, if this is all there is, and this hard stuff that's in this world, it's not enough for me. And if that's the case, oh man, do you know how desperately I would fear death? Because if this is all there is, then death is the end of it all. But guys, my hope is found in something else. There is resurrection. There is life. There is a greater hope and a greater joy. There is a new creation that is coming and it happened through Christ Jesus. Don't we all want that kind of confidence? Don't we want to be able to look at the face of death and say, no, I will not let death and fear and anxiety drive me any longer. I want to be confident. I want to look forward and I want to know that my short time on this earth now is a blip in light of eternity and everlasting happiness, everlasting joy is worth so much more than temporary Contentment now. Now, I'm not saying that belief in Jesus right now and in the resurrection will automatically take away all fear and anxiety. Please hear me when I say that. I am not saying that's what's gonna happen immediately. I am saying that faith in Jesus places in you a new heart of understanding and of growth. So that as your faith grows and you become more like Jesus, you build more confidence and fear death less and less. Do you hear me? And one day you will be made completely new and you'll be able to shout with utter confidence and utter assurance, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Guys, can I say something? And this is a little bit of a side note. Can I say this as well? 
as a challenging point for those who profess belief in Christ already. If people look at your life and they don't see sacrifice, if they look at your life and they say, that person eats, drinks, and is merry, and that person is not living in a manner that is sacrificial in any way, can I tell you something? You're missing what a piece of the Christian life looks like. Does that make sense? Because honestly, the Bible says that we as Christians should be the most pitied in the resurrection. So we should live a life that honestly should, could draw pity from people. Does that make sense? Do you guys with me with when I say that? The way you sacrificially give, the way you spend your free time, the way you pour your heart out and your emotions out and your time out for other people, the way you love, the way that you may love and help and get abused and love and help. And when I say abuse, I mean like be taken advantage of sometimes. The way you serve others. It should make other people looking at you and be like, well, if they, have no, if they have no eternity, if this is all there is on this life, then they should be pitied. Does that make sense? Because what you have is worth so much more than the fleeting temptations and pleasures of this earth. Your faith in the resurrection should give you so much more confidence so that when you face the struggles of this earth, you can do so joyfully. Um... Gina and I often talk about this, but uh, uh, you guys know that my son Josiah, yeah, yeah. Josiah's on the autism spectrum. And being on the spectrum, we, we talk about how there's nothing um, in our lives that oh, for it, sanctifies us as much as having Josiah on the spectrum right now. Um, it's one of those things where we look at it and it's, it's, it's sometimes that life is difficult and it makes things difficult for us, but it's, it's that way of looking at it, of being us to be able to look at your side and say, thank God for the way he made you because we get to know God more now. I mean, yes, it's a tough situation. Yes, it's difficult at times. Yes, I'm frustrated. And I'll be honest with you guys. Yes, sometimes I just want to scream and, and just be like, oh, why don't you get this? Why is this happening? Or why are you having a temptation that I can't control? What's going on? But there are also times when I stop and I realize with faith in my heart, knowing that the resurrection is true and that my life at this time is fleeting. And I look at him and say, I look at his worth and his beauty, the way God made him and say, thank you, God, that you're making me more like you, more dependent on you and need you more because of him. Guys, there's a beautiful way that we get to enjoy life now. That even the hard things, even the things that are difficult because of the power of the resurrection, we can say thank you, God, in the midst of them. Even when they're hard, even when they hurt, even when it makes you cry, we can still say thank you, God, because it'll make us depend on you more and you're worth more than everything. And for those of you who don't know Jesus like that, can I tell you, it changes everything. I'm not promising you wealth, health, and prosperity. Not at all. I'll promise you something better. You get Jesus. You get to be known. You get to be loved. And you have purpose. You get to know the power of the resurrection. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is now in you, moving in you, shaping you, capturing your heart, and turning you into something so different, turning you into a follower of him, someone who looks like him, acts like him, and lives like him. And the world won't be the same because of that. 
the power of the resurrection, of what we stand on, what compels us, what motivates us, what fuels us to keep on going, even when things are difficult. And when things are difficult, we get to praise God in the midst of it. Because one day, he's making all things new. Until that day comes, he's using all this for a peculiar glory. Can I get an amen? So here's what we're going to do today. I don't know if most of you noticed, but we didn't have a time of congregational prayer like we usually do. Because I wanted to save some time right after the sermon for us to pray. And here's what I want us to do. I want for those of you who are in this room, who already know Jesus and accepted him as your Lord and Savior, I want you to pray that the power of the resurrection moves in you in such a manner that you cannot live a normal worldly life, that you can't just eat, drink, and be merry. That it compels you to live a life of sacrificial love because eternity is promised you. And for those, if you're here today, and please, if this is you, please step forward in this. If you don't know Jesus, but today you want to. If you don't know what it means to be known and to be loved and to be called to purpose, if you don't know what that's like, if you don't know what it's like to have hope in an eternity and to face death without fear, if you don't know what it's like to hear and understand all these things that I've been talking about, if that's you today, there are going to be elders and prayer people and people around the room with yellow lanyards that during our worship time, I just, if you just go talk to them, if you go pray with them, will you receive Jesus today? His free gift of love for you. Danny mentioned earlier, our water's ready to go back there. And what that means is that if you're here today and you want to profess Jesus and you've never been baptized, if you, prof- if you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you want to be baptized, we'd love to baptize you today. Or maybe you've been baptized as, as a baby or as a kid, you don't know what that was about, your parents didn't explain that to you, that was just something that happened, it was a traditional thing for you. But, but in this place today, you're like, no, I profess Jesus and I want to be baptized, I want to walk in that step of obedience, please go talk to one of the elders or people in the yellow lanyard today. This could be your opportunity today to do so. You guys are like, oh, well, I didn't bring any change of clothes. That's okay. We come prepared. We have a bunch of clothes for you. We have shorts and t-shirts and uh, a bunch of different sizes. So you'll be covered. You'll be okay if that's what you want to do today. And I say that not just because we want to just knock it out, but because this is an opportunity for you. And here's the beautiful thing about baptism. It's an opportunity for you to walk in obedience, to profess to the church body, to say, no, I choose and I accept the free gift of grace. I believe, and I want to profess that belief. I want it to, to show it, I want to receive the gift of it, and I want to celebrate it with the church body. So we invite you to do that. So if you're here, if you don't know Jesus, I'd love for you to go talk to somebody, pray with them, and profess Jesus today. If you're here who have never been baptized, we'd love for you to be baptized today. And if you're here today, if you know Jesus, you've been baptized, we want you to pray, what is God calling in your life? How is he compelling you with the power of his resurrection to live? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of the resurrection, that you, resurrection speaks to our heart and to our conscience and to our, to our mind. God, that your beautiful love, that your incredible grace for us, God, you've sent your son Jesus to die upon the cross, to, to pay in full our debt and our sin. God, so that the God of justice God can show what justice really looks like, but also the God of grace and mercy can show what grace and mercy truly look like. So God, I pray, Lord, that for every one of us, may we 
believe and see the power of the resurrection that may move and change our lives. For those who don't know you, Jesus, will you compel them now by your Holy Spirit to receive this beautiful gift so that they may be known and may be loved, may be called to purpose. God, we thank you for your work. In Jesus' name, amen. The invitation is here as we worship, as we sing together. Please go and find one of these people to pray with. They'd love to pray with you. If you want to receive Jesus, please come find me, one of the pastors, one of the elders, one of the people to pray with. They'd love to pray with you. And if you'd like to receive baptism, please go pray with them as well. So let's stand and worship together.